Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to the Lycanography and the Selectionary, the podcasts that codified the canon of films from two of the world's greatest animation studios slash filmmakers, Leica and Henry Selleck. I'm Michael Leader. And I'm Steph Watts, and we've seen a lot of them. And I'm Jake Cunningham, and I'm no longer Leica Virgin. Ooh. <laughs> So join us on our quest into the glorious world of Leica and Selick. Hello, Jake. Hello, Steph. Once again, we come to the end of term. We're letting our hair down, bringing in some board games, throwing out all the lesson plans, as we usually do when we get to the end of our mini-series. What a ride we've been on mm. with Henry Selick, with Travis Knight... And all the other characters in the Selectionary and the Lycanography miniseries. Uh, Jake, how has that trip been for you? Um, well, I've been thinking of our series as uh, kind of different terms that we would have lived in our youth. And so perhaps the end of Ghibliotech felt like maybe the end of Key Stage 1, Key Stage 2. Um, and then Satoshi Khan edgelord teens but you haven't maybe got to your uh gcses just yet but it's all very intense where you're doing like 11 exams in the space of two weeks uh so then i was thinking cartoon saloon it was quite short it wasn't too arduous that's probably like as levels um and i was i was pondering what what this one might be because this is been a long series it's been kind of two series in one um so it's like almost doing like your mock exams and then your real exams back to back um at like gosh i don't know maybe university where it felt intent very intense points and like your brain was being fried uh what do you guys think can't think anything now. I'm just so in awe of that, and now I need to know what our um, equivalent of uh, you know adult education is going to be. Night school. <laughs> Have we graduated with like a podcasting masters from the school of Leica? Well, maybe this was like the undergraduate third year, where it is just like so intense for a long, long period of time, um, and then it's over and then you, for some reason, decide to go and do an MA immediately straight after and pile on even more pressure. So maybe that's what the next series is. Um, and thank you to listeners for keeping with us, not only through this mini-series, but through the very specific early 21st century references to 
formal education fair. <laughs> do kids today even do any of those qualifications at school? <laughs> and o- only in England as well. It's very different wherever we go. But Steph, how has the journey been for you? Well, ups and downs. I mean, both Henry Selleck and Leica have literally taken us to hell and back. <laughs> We've been to some dark places in the films and in our discussions and feelings about these films. Um, it's been really fun. It's been a learning experience. Uh, I've, I've enjoyed it. The high highs have been, you know, made even higher by the low lows for me. Mm. It, how, how have you found, yeah, Michael, having like, a, it's not uncommon for there to have been a film that we don't really like mm-hmm. in this series, which compared to everything else we've ever done is very different. How have you found that? It was weird, wasn't it? It felt a little bit out of step with maybe what we've done for the last four years of the podcast. But I think what surprised me and reassured me by the end is that it was it was all part of the story we were telling. Hmm. The narrative we were we- weaving about not only the characters like Henry Selleck and Travis Knight and the rise of Leica Studios or the plateauing of Leica Studios, but also the craft of stop-motion animation. I keep thinking back to how Nightmare Before Christmas was seen as this great risk and it paid off. And then James and the Giant Peach was delivered almost dumped dead on arrival and Henry Selleck was told "There's um, there's no viable future for this art form. But then suddenly in the 21st century there was this new life for feature-length stop-motion animation both in the films we covered and then elsewhere so I think even though maybe we landed more negative in certain quarters than we have ever in the past it's all part of I hope it's all part of the story and I hope we were we were at least um you know, rational and and you know, under, you know there was some understanding in terms of the opinions we had. Mm. It's been it's been such a long journey, not just not for us making this, but for the filmmakers and for the people involved in everything. And like when we've studied it in the way that we have, you forget the amount of time that has gone on between all of these projects. And we're recording this, and the whale has just premiered. At Venice Film Festival, the Brendanescence, the the Brendan <laughs> Fraser return and start of an Oscar campaign for him, has has kick started. The Wendell and Wilde trailer has come out. There is a huge outpouring of love for Henry Selleck as well, and it's quite strange to think, just that, like there are two characters, and twenty years ago, post Monkey Bone. Mm-hmm the lives that they would have been living and the cultural reaction to their figures and the work that they were doing at that point compared to what they are now as kind of cult heroes rather than people sitting on top of a box office bar. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so as is customary with all our miniseries, we do have this finale episode where we do loosen our ties a little bit and relax, but we have a couple of things we always like to do any sort of short films that were in the margins of the story we told. We like to go back and look at those. We like to see what happened next with the key cast of characters that we've talked about through throughout the miniseries. And then we have the mailbag, where we, listeners and friends of the show send in their takes on the films and the filmmakers and the opinions that have featured 
throughout the miniseries. So where should we start? Oh, gosh. <laughs> should we start with some short films? Yeah. Yeah, let's start with the uh, the short one. Let's, should we go back? Oh, God. Should we go back 40 years? Why don't we do it reverse chronologically? So I picked three <laughs> short films here from Henry Selick's career. And the most recent one is 2005's Moon Girl, which is important to both the strands of this miniseries, the Henry Selick strand and the Leica strand, because it's the first project that Selick worked on with the studio and also their first proper produced short film, full stop. So that's Moon Girl and Jake. Mm-hmm. A bit of context for Moon Girl first, actually. This was an idea that came around from a Leica staffer called Mike Berger, who had an idea for a girl that lived in the moon and a boy that has a sort of encounter with her. He came up with some concepts and everything. You can find that online. And this was back at a time where Travis Knight and the way that Leica was worked, they were very open to suggestion. And we, we mentioned this all the way throughout, that many of those feature films grew from a kernel of inspiration from one of the staffers. And so Moon Girl was selected by Phil Knight, Mike Burgess says, Phil Knight picked this one as um, Leica's inaugural project. But they needed a professional filmmaker with some clout and history behind him to develop and shepherd the project so they, that's where they bring in Henry Selick to write a script and direct it it's a short film it's a CG animated short film and this was back when it wasn't sure whether Leica would continue working in the Will Vinton studio tradition of being more stop motion based or whether they would embrace computer animation and so this was they talk about this as being an experiment in a production pipeline for creating CG animation at the studio. And um, what do you think of it, Jake? It's horrible, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. This is 2005, but I wouldn't be surprised if this was a PlayStation 1 kind of cutscene. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's rough, isn't it? Um, particularly, there's a cat in it, uh, that particularly the face of the cat and the way that the cat moves is quite horrible um considering like the beautiful things that they like with the people involved that they had to their disposal could have been doing in stop motion like this is horrendously ugly and quite annoying as well i i don't think the performances are very good at all i found it very grating so it's like it's a it's a hard film to hear like the Mm. music's really bad the acting's really bad and it looks really bad as well um so yeah it's great that it's only eight minutes long god thank god they put the cg in the bin um but then it is strange then that they make this like very kind of generic cg approach to this film and like at the time when you look at what pixar are doing with their shorts i mean comparable to the time with like like luna which is another little child on the moon Mm-hmm. Short. We spoke to Enrico Casarosa about it. That that's beautiful and lovely, and like doing amazing things with CG. And this is, as you say, like PlayStation cutscene. And uh, yeah, strange that they then went from this to doing stop motion that looks like stop motion. 
that puts the men on a track to making stop motion that then looks like generic CG. That is really an interesting way of looking at it. I mean, to their credit, this was a tech demo, pretty much. Mm. And they went in a completely different direction. It is very surprising to me that this played at festivals around the world. There was also one-off screenings of it in front of The Nightmare Before Christmas. Um, because it would have, you know, sort of seasonal rep screenings of that film around the time. Very odd. I quite like it on a story level. Um, Henry Selick talks about it being almost like a stargazy, nighttime, dreamy film about this little adventure with a girl. The bit I like about it is he says he wanted the ending to have a Twilight Zone sort of twist. And the twist in this one being that once he saves the moon girl and puts all the pieces together and beats the boss and all this stuff, she then goes back down to Earth and wakes up and he has to become the moon boy for the next kid. I quite like that as a sort of very dark twist in the telling. Yeah, it would be good if it, but if, it, if the film attempted to play it like that. But mm-hmm. both parties in the narrative think that that's a great thing. Again, I think... <laughs> tech demo is the best way yeah. to do to, to look at this where i think if given a bit more time in the oven this could have been something different but really important to the history of Leica. Mm. and in terms of this being i think I, I guess the outside of his collaborations with uh with with wes anderson it's the only post monkey bone Selick project before before Coraline. Mm. And as we know, and we'll talk about this later, we don't often get many finished projects from Henry Selleck no. <laughs> over the last 20 years. <laughs> so treasure them, I suppose, even if they are a bit grotesque. But another short film, if we're going... To, uh, these three shorts that I picked for us to have a look at almost land in the cracks of Henry Selleck's career, just as something's about to happen or just as something's finishing. And the other one... The second one I lined up was 1991's Slow Bob in the Lower Dimensions, uh, which was a pilot for MTV and is almost, I suppose, a culmination of the MTV era of Selleck's career. He'd made a lot of very strange, experimental, surreal idents and little bits and skits for MTV through the late 80s and then wanted to turn a lot of that visual language and experimentation into a potential series of shorts and this was the pilot. And you can find it on YouTube, courtesy of a YouTube channel uh, set up by one Heather Selleck, uh, his <laughs> wife. Um, although, go on that channel, and I'm, I'm, I swear it's a secret Henry Selleck YouTube account, because the only other two uploads, there's this great high-res scan of Slow Bob, and then the other two videos are um, listings for sale of... Um, second-hand vintage guitar amps where it's definitely an older man's voice narrating it (laughs) and you see a little sort of lanky hand putting them in in and out of shots and it's definitely Henry Selleck's YouTube account. (laughs) I love it. I feel like we stumbled upon him there. But Slow Bob, again, Jake, what do you make of that? And Steph, I know you've watched this as well, but Jake. Well, I was going to say to Steph, um, regarding Slow Bob, Let's say you're an executive at MTV in the early 90s and someone makes this and pitches it to you 
as a pilot for a series that you as an executive would spend money on to have multiple episodes of that would entertain a lot of people. What are your thoughts? <laughs> this definitely feels like something that, you know, you turn on the TV at like 1am and it's just playing and you just have to sit with it and deal with it <laughs> because there's nothing else on. Um, which I guess like that, that kind of, you know, you slipped into this weird dark space of late night TV is kind of lost on the internet where you can just click away mm. um, after like 30 seconds. Uh, but I feel like it has a kind of, yeah, the weird MTV vibe. I don't know how this would have been pitched because I I watched it a little while ago, but I couldn't tell you like what, what it's actually about. It's most, it just gives me like images and mm. I, yeah, I'm not entirely sure I, I what I watched. But a great time capsule of MTV circa this this point was a little bit of a haven for alternative artists and animators in a similar way to how Adult Swim did that maybe, what, 10, 15, 20 years afterwards. And there's something about this you know, that puts me in mind of don't hug me, I'm scared, or too many cooks and all this <laughs> stuff that where it would be something that would be wild to stumble on. Mm-hmm. But yeah, how would this become an almost... You know, a a commission for a series. It's really fascinating because it starts with Slow Bob, who's our hero, who's going on surreal Freudian psycho- psychological adventures in the mind in a dreamscape. <laughs> uh, very plotless, but also something I I seem to be repeating every week through the selectionary conversations we've had is that he is an experimental filmmaker at heart, and he's clearly here loving the mixture of media mm. different animation forms and it's something maybe that he's found ways to incorporate into his stop motion films because this pilot is made and then he almost immediately goes away and starts making the nightmare before christmas but it's really fascinating to see that he really was pulling from all different traditions and art forms here before settling on the primary one for the rest of his career yeah it's weird i feel like this is us proposing this imaginary pitch meeting is the pitch meeting at the start of monkey bone where someone pitches a terrible animation idea and then but they will go with it in monkey bone and think it's brilliant i'm not saying that this is terrible but yeah i i would god i'd love to see henry selick in pitch mode like having to sell these ideas like he's doing don draper <laughs> would be amazing But I'd, I'd recommend, it feels like we're peeling away the mm. layers of Henry Selleck here. And it's got a Phil Tippett credit, which is always nice to mm. see. Because I think around this time, there was a lot of crossover between the people that would work with Phil Tippett and the people that would work with Henry Selleck. I think Phil Tippett, in one of the interviews around Mad God, when he's talked about why the production of that film sort of ground to a halt in the early 90s, he said the reason was, all of his technicians left to work on The Nightmare Before Christmas and James the Giant Peach. So, yeah, there are only so many hands Mm. that can work this magic and they have to be shared between all these filmmakers. Imagining Um, Phil Tippett just working on Mad God by himself, like, I'll make my weird Seven Circles of Hell movie while everyone else animates a skeleton enjoying Christmas. (laughs) (laughs) Something about Slow Bob before we move away from it is the music for it is by Residents, who are the um, uh, 
anonymous, long-running, confounding, anti-pop experimental band. So another piece in the puzzle of Henry Selick working with outsider, kind of quirky, avant-garde, alternative pop musicians through his career. So there's this, and they might be giants in wanting to bring in um, Andy Partridge from XTC on James the Giant Peach, and then, of course, Danny Elfman in Nightmare Before Christmas as well. So he loves his music, mm. loves his weird music and his weird animation. And I don't think it comes much weirder than one of his student films, which is another one I'll nod to we can talk about very briefly, which comes up time and again in terms of um, the Henry Selick works to talk about, which is Seepage from 1981. Again, one that is quite hard to um, sum up in terms of plot. I think I might just read the plot for it that's on Letterboxd, if you can indulge me for a second. Let me find it. And Jake, you can tell me if you recognise this from what we watched. Marlborough and the Arab, lounging on the pool terrace, are alienated characters in some future time, living in a world where artwork comes to life. Phones continuously ring, televisions hum all night, and smog seeps into their brains. Well, it does what it says on the tin, doesn't it? It's great. I mean, you, that, that's, just a bun- that's just a description of what happens. <laughs> As if it's a plot. This yeah. film's great. I loved it. I love it. Yeah, it's bananas. Um, the, the animation is like from... Like, they, it is so, so budget. It's amazing. Like, but just being so creative with no money whatsoever. You've, you've got these chaps that are lounging on their, on their seats and just the forced perspective on some of the ways that their bodies are laid out because they're just paper cutouts that have been mm-hmm. held together by uh, little plastic hinges to move them. It's like, real like primary school stuff in the way that you would make a skeleton bounce around on a Halloween decoration. But it's so evocative and so stressful. And you've got that style of animation, which is half of it. And then you've got this amazing pencil sketch stuff going on that's felt closer to the hellscapes of Monkey Bone than any of the other stuff that we've seen, like these warped perspective cities and roller coaster roads. Um, and also, I would love to talk to, like... Lisa Hannawalt and other people involved in Bojack Horseman about this mm. because you've got like the people like kind of socialite appearing people lounging by a pool clear David Hockney influences and lots of psychedelic visuals of horses like that is so much Bojack Horseman um, and of course breaking animation form which Bojack loves to do as well this film's great mm. it's really worth Uh, checking out and I think that's an interesting reference point to make because it does sit at this junction between looking forwards and looking backwards because all that cutout animation goes back to one of the the foundation film viewing experiences Henry Selick talks about as as a young kid watching Lotta Reniger's films which are all cut out paper cut out animation but also, I love that you mentioned, you remarked on the the, the fact that you can see the hinges mm. of the characters, which goes all the way forwards to the fight he'd have with 
Phil Knight and Laika mm. about keeping in the seams of the characters of the stop motion characters. Um, here, he likes to foreground the fact that these well, are you, made. You creations. see that in um, in Slow Bob as well, like the mm-hmm. the the um, marionette type figures. You can see all of their hinges moving. Yeah, it's, but, it's but, crack, cracking, great. But it's it's interesting that what isn't in this film, or even Slow Bob to a certain extent, is. Um, the other side of things the adams family gothic even ray harryhausen monster movie stuff so he becomes after the nightmare before christmas and all the way up to wendell and wilde as he wants to be a kid storyteller working in this tradition of scary kid stories in seepage and slow bob he's much more of an abstract artist an experimental filmmaker going back to that sense that when he was at college he was studying experimental animation and character animation they're all in here as you say you you don't necessarily link henry selick with drawn animation Mm. and that's all in here as well so it's really worth almost seeing the henry selick style unravel by going backwards through his shorts i Mm. think so there you go listeners seepage slow bob and moon girl all worth checking out if you want to go deeper down the rabbit hole of the selectionary. What we have to do next, though, we've looked into the past and now we have to look into the future. Not crystal ball style, but at least coming up to date with all of our key characters in the series so far. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Okay, Michael, so the last we heard of Henry Selleck, he had made Coraline, and then we let that story thread drift to an end, and then we mm-hmm. transferred over to Leica, we went through their filmography, and talked about their most recent release as well. But what are the missing links to get us to where we are now? 
I think I teased this in that very episode where I said that it's a, there are some dead ends in Henry Selleck's story after Coraline. He makes a movie that is a resounding box office success, Oscar nominated, 125 million um, takings. And then in March 2010, he leaves Leica and signs a deal with Disney Pixar to produce stop motion projects. He sets up a company that gets the name Cinderbiter, and it's based in San Francisco, hires 150 staff, and gets underway with an original project that would become known as The Shadow King, which, um, if you don't know that project, don't worry, because it never came out. But this is the blurb for what would have been The Shadow King. The Shadow King is a deliciously magical tale about a nine-year-old New York orphan, Hap, who hides his fantastically weird hands with long fingers from a cruel world. But when a living shadow girl teaches him to make amazing hand shadows that come to life, his hands become incredible weapons in a shadow war against a ravenous monster bent on killing Hap's brother Richard and ultimately destroying New York. Yes. Wow. (laughs) Very weird. (laughs) So, as I said, 150 employees or so in that studio they get cracking it's a new york city set film so they're making sets of new york skylines they design characters animation starts until august 2012 when it's announced that disney had to pull the plug on the production and this is after 50 million dollars had been spent on the film and um we've heard this story before henry selick was brought into the fold at disney by his old friend john lassiter Um, And it was very much a sort of creatives, supporting creatives decision. Um, But then by 2012, there'd been a change of leadership up top at Disney. And there's an executive called Alan Horn, who was the chairman at that time. And it's another Henry Selleck project that fell between the shifting tectonic plates of a studio, a major studio. And this sort of awkward, difficult experience. But at least in, in the past, the films would, would eventually get made. But this is the time where, you know, $50 million into a project, it was canned. And they say that it was because it wasn't in step with the slate they wanted to develop or that it wasn't going to hit the mark of its intended release date. So they thought they'd just take the $50 million on the chin. But whatever the real reason was, Disney... Um, you know, Disney binned the project, but all was not lost, at least it didn't seem so, and Selleck tried to take the work they'd done elsewhere and save the 150 jobs from um, from being sacked. And initially he goes back to Leica and tries to get Travis Knight on board. And apparently, you know, Leica were just finishing up Paranorman at the time, but Travis Knight was up for trying to get the funding together to Where keep Where would that he get the money? Going. Exactly. <laughs> It's a bit rich then that uh, Travis Knight says, sorry, I don't know where I can get the money for this film for you, Henry. (laughs) But that's what happens. Uh, Travis Knight and Leica can't set up the project. But then Henry Selleck then tries to shop it around. They take it to the European film market in Berlin um, and um, try to get sort of international funding and co-producers on board, but that didn't work either. So the project was over. So it's just sort of three years of work down the drain. Um, But go online 
And so many great artists were involved in this, from the designs to the storyboarding to actual animation. And because this is one of those projects that just was lost, they've put all their stuff online. There's like a, quite an amazing amount of this film that's available to have a look at. And like they're on YouTube and on blogs and so on. How, look it up. It looks interesting. And it's a shame we didn't get that film. Yes, yeah, it's, it's interesting you mentioned um, the tales of Prince Archimed as an inspiration, because mm-hmm. um, that is when you read the synopsis of this and like how much of that is in is of course silhouettes and shadows and early mm. key inspirations for Selick. Like it feels like this would be that opportunity that he's bringing that a different form of mixed media into a mainstream thing here again but really tying that to such an early inspiration for his too. I would have loved to see what he would do with kind of shadow play and bringing that into his modern style of stop motion as well. Yeah, I do wonder if it's just one twist too many mm. in the twistedness of the story, like having, like, watch the footage of, because they have the, the footage of, like, of Hap at night doing the sh- trying to do the shadow puppetry on the wall with his sort of long distended fingers, which are sort of almost like Struel Peter, that character that mm. inspired Edward Scissorhands. And it's very weird. I can imagine a lot of even the, even sort of kind executives who want to support creative visions being like, that's a bit weird for your main character to have <laughs> this these hands. Is it a bit like uh, salad fingers? <laughs> surprisingly so. Oh my God, you've nailed it. Um, but Henry Selick was, was, you know had other projects on the go at that point there was lots of chat around that time of him doing a a film version of the graveyard book which was the um sort of next kids novella that neil gaiman released after Coraline. that never came to anything in the end he was also attached to another uh, live action property which was um an adaptation of um a tale dark and grim which was almost like um, creating the Grimm, Brothers Grimm cinematic universe where Hansel and Gretel go travelling through the other stories, saving kids and fighting monsters and beasties. Um, I think that actually did, in the end, get made into a TV series by Netflix, but wasn't a Henry Selick production in the end. And he was also attached for a long time to maybe, I think they even created a pilot for it, but to create a TV series based off The Little Nightmares video game which is another one of those weird roundabout things where little nightmares the video game is very influenced by henry selick's stop motion uh, stuff. that came up on my um my playstation store uh this mm. month for a free download so I've, i yeah. i need i should play it i had no it's idea very, very burton selicky they clearly watched those films growing mm. up the people okay. who made that game but then again even then that's not really seen the light of day that's not come to anything but then the happy ending to this story is we are but a month and a half away from seeing a brand new Henry Selick film. It's taken him, um, what, uh, 13 12, years. 13 years since Coraline. But Wendell and Wilde is coming out. What's wild about Wendell and Wilde is that it was first announced in 2015. Um, and Jordan Peele and... and, and uh, you know, both Key and Peele were attached to it then, with Jordan Peele co-writing the screenplay. They, they, they've been involved in it for a long time, and it's just taken a long time to gestate, and then Netflix gets involved, and then suddenly it happens. And, yeah, I can't wait to see it. 
I'm very, very excited. I'm hoping it gets... A, I know the Netflix cinema rollouts aren't normally that big, but I'm hoping that this they at least try and get this in more than a handful of screens in central London and get this out to a, a big cinema crowd. Yeah, for Halloween at least. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I hope that the, the kind of weight behind Jordan Peele and his mm. turn to horror uh, in the last few years will, yeah, push that out. I'm excited for that. It's going to be good. I, I read an interesting interview where, because this has been in, in, in development since 2015, which is before the whole Jordan Peele thing, he was. He even said in an interview, I think, that he or Selick did, that there was some concern about him going away and making Get Out because if that failed, it would sink Wendell and Wilde. Because <laughs> um, so, it's kind of now we have this hindsight. We think, oh, of course, Wendell and Wilde only exists because Jordan Peele is Jordan Peele. But in some ways, this was seen as the safer, surer bet than <laughs> the films he's gone on to make and become a household name for. But that will be fascinating to watch in only a matter of weeks. But that's Henry Selleck, so there is a happy ending that he's managed to make another film. (laughs) (laughs) Quite a low bar to clear, but clearly uh, not low enough. So that's Henry Selleck and what he's up to now. But what's happening with Laika? We've done Missing Link, but what's next? Well, as Jake mentioned on our Bumblebee episode, the Library Cafe spin-off, Travis Knight has directed another live-action project. The Is it still happening? Is that still happening, Jake? What? I mean, you saw this. I you saw, saw it Mark Wahlberg. Yeah. You saw it in action, so it's clearly been filmed, but there's not much out there about the cin- cinema theatrical reboot of Six Million Dollar Man starring Mark Wahlberg, directed by Travis Knight. But that's what he, he's been up to in the last year or so. While Meanwhile, Leica have announced two films in production and let me go through these so one is Wildwood which um, has been talked about for a couple of years now they recently announced the voice cast for it Mahershala Ali and Kerry Mulligan Aquafina, people like that but this is talked about as their first Oregon based feature film considering they're based in portland but um i would love it if they they try and make that a tagline (laughs) make that a selling point yeah the kids love oregon um but it's adapted from a series of kids adventure books called wild wood Uh, written by Colin Malloy, who is a local author, and people may know him as the frontman and principal songwriter of The Decemberists, Um, sort of indie folk, pitchfork-friendly band. Um, I actually have the book right here, and it's Colin Malloy. um, Oh, it's hefty. Yeah, it is hefty, Mm. isn't it? It's a bit doorstoppy. I mean, the text is... um, doesn't fill the whole page of the co- of the copy I have, which is a bit of a cheat. Mm. But it is this first volume is six hundred pages or something, five hundred and fifty pages. Um, it the book starts with a map yes. of of, of the area, which is always a good sign. But it's Colin Malloy writing with his uh, his wife Carson Ellis as illustrator, and I'll read the blurb on the back. 
who dares to enter the forbidden wilderness? Prue McKeel is keeping out of trouble, or trying to. Then her baby brother is abducted by crows and hauled off to the woods beyond the city. It's up to Prue to bring him back. On her mission, she is plunged into the world of Wildwood, where she meets more trouble and magic than she ever thought possible. Which is kind of an indie folk labyrinth, I guess. Mm. Um, Sounds fun. I, I, I was, I've, I've got this on the to-read pile, and um, today I got a notification from my local library to take back our books that we had out for our three-year-old, and I thought, I recognise that name, and I've got a book that's actually by the illustrator of Wildwood, Carson Ellis, that's called The Half Room, which is one of Ivo's favourite books. And it's just this sort of beautiful little picture book where it's about half a window, half a door, half a rug on half a floor, <laughs> sort of good night moon style rhymes, but with everything being half a thing. And I love her, her art style. It'd be interesting to see how that goes through the Leica ringer. Um, when that finally comes out in the next couple of years. But that's just one of the two projects. I think the other one is the one that people out there are a bit more intrigued by, because Wildwood seem, sounds a little bit like, a bit more in the, that sounds like it's in the wheelhouse of a mm. Paranorman or a Coraline. But The Night Gardener, have you two heard of this one? This is like the, is it Noir? Neo-Noir. Yeah. And it's by... Bill Dubuque, who's the creator of Ozark, that uh, series that's on Netflix that I, I don't, don't know, know anyone, anyone who's watched, watched any Ozark. <laughs> <laughs> Several seasons of Ozark is on Netflix, but um, I can't attest to if it's any good or not. Um, do you want me to quote a classic Travis Knight quote from this, <laughs> uh, this release? The Night Gardener is a beautiful and timeless story that quickens the pulse as often as it breaks the heart. Oh, Travis. <laughs> Bill is a masterful storyteller. He's crafted a lyrical world layered with complex characters, provocative ideas, and keenly felt emotion. It's going to be one hell of a movie. <laughs> yeah, these quotes remind me of, like, Gavin, Gavin Belson from Silicon Valley. Like, this got the these aren't the real ways that people talk like um i left out the plot synopsis all, all, all we know the, the full extent of what we know about the night gardener is it is described as a gritty neo-noir folk tale centered on a young man in rural missouri fighting to keep his family together in the wake of a tragedy so much more grounded mm. noirish sort of human and character Centered, maybe a little bit more adult skewing. I suppose. Sounds like it would be like a, a seven-part HBO crime drama in which an actor who was big fifteen years ago makes a comeback wearing some prosthetics. Like that's what it, it doesn't sound like a, a short kids stop motion film. So I'm very excited about it. <laughs> it's one hell of a movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Great. But that's, that's the tagline. Um, but that's. Again, Travis Knight's big vision for Leica is they do something different every time. Mm. And this is one where they're doing a... I suppose it is similar to Paranorman in some ways, but it is much more of a folky adventure story in Wildwood. 
and then with the night gardener adult skewing grounded but also i suppose working with a name creator from from a writing standpoint which they've never really mm. done before it's always been adaptations rather than someone who's so involved so that's like her and we'll be seeing those i suppose in the next couple of years so it sounded like you were going to go into like a rat pack <laughs> thing there <laughs> and that and then we sign off that's like a <laughs> only if you two come in on the backing vocals um but i suppose very quickly very briefly because what's interesting we mentioned wendell and wild we mentioned the Leica projects coming up um and how this mini series is you know of course we do it by design but it's very well timed to tee up these other films in the near future but sam fell the co-director of paranorman is over at Ardman and has directed the Chicken Run sequel, Dawn of the Nuggets, and that's out in 2023. I did that's, not know that was no, the horrible. full title. <laughs> <laughs> you pro, pro I don't or against? Like that. Anti-nugget. Oh, no. That's awful. <laughs> Dawn of the Nugget. That's not even a play on anything. Maybe it's a working title. You've got to hope. I hope so. I hope there's a bit where. Jamie Oliver comes in and shows them a nugget made of like brains and gizzards and and wombs and then a load of kids decide that they want to eat it anyway. That would be great. I'm sure there'll be lots of processing of gizzards and wombs in Chicken Run 2. And then there's the Box Trolls co-director Anthony Stacci who is directing a project for Netflix that's meant to be coming our way in 2023 which is called the monkey king um which is a sort of chinese asian american project that he's helming that's exec produced by stephen chow which is quite an interesting one to read about the news on it's gone quite quiet in the last year or so so i don't know if it's actually still coming but it sounds like it's some they're beavering away on it somewhere but the, if it if all those line up then we've got new spin-off films from Selectionary and the Lycanography. Yeah. We've got potentially five of them in the next yeah. year or two. Well, and we've got a new Cartoon Saloon film coming up. Hopefully a new Ghibli film as well. Oh, God. I have to be picking up the old textbooks again. Absolutely. But before we bid farewell to Leica and Selic, we do have the mailbag to open and see what treats wait for us in there. Okay, because we embrace modern technology on Tech, our mailbag is not just sent via carrier pigeon direct to our doors. We do actually have some a voice memo to include in this episode coming from the lovely Sam Summers, who I'm sure lots of listeners will know from the wonderful Disneyversity podcast. And so Sam teaches animation or teaches the history of animation rather than the animation itself. And so getting his insights into the world of Leica and Selic from an educator's perspective is fascinating. 
Hi guys, it's been fascinating to hear your thoughts on Henry Selick and Leica as you move through their films in chronological order and see how they've evolved over the years. And I'm really interested in one of your recurring critiques of Leica's films, that their high-tech production processes remove a lot of the visible traces of the stop-motion technique. I saw an interview with Henry Selick on Polygon this week where he basically said the same thing, that these mistakes like the lines connecting characters' faces to their bodies are important because the audience has to work a little more to believe in what they're seeing and he thinks that they become more invested if they make that effort. And it's definitely true that Leica's films do their best to do away with these mistakes, and I agree that it makes them a little bit less charming than Henry Selick's films or those of Aardman or Wes Anderson, etc., but I'm curious about why you guys think this is such an important part of stop motion's appeal compared to other types of animation. Big budget computer animation and cell animation work hard to obscure their means of production as well, but people don't miss it like they do with stop motion, like none of Miyazaki's films look like they were made with pen and ink, he tries to make you forget about that. If you could see the peg holes holding the cells together, for example, it would look like a cheap mistake. In fact, the only Ghibli films that really look handmade are probably Princess Kaguya and My Neighbours the Yamadas, which were both made digitally, so go figure. And this actually reminds me of an essay question that I set for my animation students. Choose one stop-motion animated film and consider how and why the filmmaker utilises the unique qualities of the stop-motion technique. What are its effects in terms of narrative, theme, or tone? And Leica films are really popular choices for this, which is probably a generational thing, like a certain type of Gen Z student is really into Paranorman or Kubo, I guess. But the more convincing answers usually refer to something that more overtly foregrounds these unique qualities, like Nightmare Before Christmas or Wallace and Gromit, Fantastic Mr. Fox, or even something by Jan Schwankmeier. So there's a challenge for you and your listeners, I suppose. See if you can answer that question about a Leica film. 2,000 words with Harvard reference, and if you don't mind. Thank you to Dr. Sam for that, for that contribution to our mailbag episode. So packed with insights and uh, even a call to action for a 2,000-word essay for <laughs> us and all listeners to have on his desk by Monday morning, with Harvard referencing. How cruel. I'm having flashbacks to how I would be marked down for incorrect referencing. You left out the year, your brackets are in the wrong place, the dots wasn't there. Well, all this stuff. Still wake up screaming about that. But Sam and his co-host Ben over at Disneyversity are back in there in full flow of their series. They're now into the late 80s. Yeah, so the corner into the 1990s. And so you've got former guest of this podcast, Beth Webb, on the most recent episode, which is The Rescuers Down Under. Uh, So that a a dream collab for all animation podcast fans out there. (laughs) And there is one thing. This will be going out on Friday. So the weekend following this episode going live, Sam and Ben are doing their first live show. And it is a live discussion about the greatest film of all time, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, uh, which does have a link to this miniseries we're talking about because Henry Selick worked on that project as an in-between animator. So there you go. I'm dubbing that an unofficial live (laughs) spin-off or crossover of the Selectionary over at Disneyversity. You can search for them. Uh, go listen to their podcast. Go see them live. That we, yeah, we we love their work. 
But thank you once again, Sam, for sending that in. How should we tackle the rest of these mailbag contributions? Should we go around Robin style, Steph? Do you want to read the first one? Sure. Uh, so we have one from Matthew Webb who says, Hi, folks. Firstly, thank you for shining the spotlight on these two very diverse filmographies and some sidesteps along the way in the Library Cafe. It's been a real treat to revisit some old favourites, some very interesting films. I'm looking at you, Monkey Bone, and a couple <laughs> of first-time watches. Personal highlights for me were having a good excuse to watch Paranorman and Missing Link again for the first time in several years, and having my opinion on them completely flip. Both are very enjoyable stories, and a lovely homages to classic tales of their respective genres, with a nice twist on them both. A quick question from me too. Are there plans to revisit the selectionary with Wendell and Wilde coming out digitally next month, or perhaps the lichenography whenever Wildwood sees the light of day? Thanks again for your time and for providing me with a great source of comfort with the podcast over the past several weeks during a very tricky month. Best, Matthew. Well, thanks for Matthew, Matthew. I, I feel you, mate. It's been <laughs> it's been that kind of month. It's been that kind of year, um, and we've already answered your question, I suppose. Absolutely. We we will be covering those films, very likely. Uh, so watch the watch the skies for those, I suppose, when and, those films and, come out. And nice to see The Missing Link, love, as well, because that was mm-hmm. um, so quiet on release. And, yeah, I'm, I'm, I know that people, some people weren't exactly thrilled with our response to Kubo, but I'm hoping that there are people that are maybe nicely surprised about Missing Link. And there's uh, a good pull quote for the Monkey Bone poster. Very interesting, <laughs> Matthew Webb. <laughs> I've got one here from Nikki Hutchinson who says, for me, like it is at its best when they tackle ideas or subjects that you wouldn't expect to see for a general audience rated animated film, be it the sentencing of a child to death and twisting it into a story about a witch in Paranorman, a boy being taken away and not to care about the people on earth in Kubo and the two strings, or just the sheer horror vibes in Coraline, but still being able to bring out the heart, humour and imagination in all of them, even the more comedy-focused stuff like the box trolls and Missing Link. And I hope they continue to even greater accomplishments with whatever they take on next. Many thanks, Nikki. And we absolutely agree. We would very much want to see them going and trying out whatever comes up in front of them. Like that is, Although it might not always work, they are always interesting. Yeah, I, I think actually that email is great because it does sort of show how acrobatic. Like what a good been. way of putting it. That's a very Travis way of putting it, Michael. <laughs> One hell of a studio. Yeah, <laughs> they really they really do jump between different tones and genres and styles, and I, th- I think that's what yeah that, that's something that we hope to see more of mm. in the future. Okay. One more from me, and I'm glad I'm reading this one out so I don't have to answer it first. This is from Scott Sortel. I was wondering, what would be your top five favourite movies out of all the movies you have covered? Well, Scott, I would love to say that I thought over this for a long, long time ahead of this record. Um (laughs) Or did I, in fact, write it on a post-it note uh, whilst Michael was monologuing? Uh, I actually I did, took two approaches to this. One was the instinctual approach, and then one was to overthink as well. So the overthought one was to include one film 
to include something from each of the filmmakers we've looked at. So that was My Neighbor Totoro, Paranoia Agent, Song of the Sea, Coraline, and then Grave of the Fireflies, because you couldn't have a you couldn't not have a Takata in there. But then the version that was the instinctual version was Totoro, Millennium Actress, Song of the Sea, Fireflies and Porco Rosso. So so did you forget about Hoster or did he just not make the cut? Just didn't make the cut. This is like why about paranoia Dre. agent in one list, but millennium actress in the other list. Just interrogate Jake's list yeah, yeah. while we Let's... think about our own. Um, I don't think any of the Hosoda films are better than any of those films. Um, but paranoia agent was in there because that was when we were doing it. But I haven't revisited it. Paranoia agent was what I put as my number one. But mm-hmm. the thing that I've revisited the most since then is Millennium Actress. Well, here's a question, mm. which might kind of make things a bit easier, but maybe not so rich an answer. Are there any films in the subsequent miniseries that can go toe-to-toe with the top five Ghibli films? Great, great shout. Um... Because, that, because that's what we've said all along, is that with the reason why we chose Ghibli to start this podcast is that that is a studio where at their peak made several five-star all-timer films. I, I think that definitely con. There's, there are multiple cons that you could put up against them. I am... I don't know. I love Song of the Sea. But I don't know if it's better than any of the top five best Ghiblis. Same goes for Coraline. I think, yeah, at a push, you get some con in there, but that's the only thing that's going to get rid of a Ghibli. What do you reckon? But yeah, so I think that is the pure instinctual thing, which is that that is one way of asking, is like if we were slotting all of the lists together in that sense... Adding the oh, right. order yeah, and, the, yeah, yeah. and the the what was the con? What was the the, the pun chronology? We came up the, con? the chronology. Um, I'm I'm looking at my ranking now for the Ghiblis, and so my last ranking. Uh, this was done when we were writing the book. Was Totoro, Porco Rosso, Grave of the Fireflies, The Red Turtle, Kiki's Delivery Service, was my top five. And are any Satoshi Kon films better than any of those films? And what would be number six? Princess Mononoke. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. Very tricky. Sorry. So, Steph, <laughs> any any sort of instinctive responses to that? Because considering listeners have listened to Jake and I talk about these lists from the <laughs> well, very yeah, beginning. Well, yeah, I mean, I've never done a Ghibli yeah. list on the Ghibli attack. Oh, we should do that as a library cafe, Steph's list. Yeah, Steph's Ghibli list. Um, so, I feel like I could choose... I can choose chaos because I don't have a list. It's monkey bone, isn't it? <laughs> it's monkey bone is number one. I'm sorry, guys. No. Um, oh. I mean, yeah, there's definitely a mix of Ghibli in there, in the top five. I feel but like you I would stick a perfect blue in, maybe. I think perfect blue would have to... Perfect blue and Malalim Actress would have to be in there. In and the I top think, five? Like, in the top five. 
So three what, Why are you laughing? Just because it's so brutal. It's really hard. Because I think as well, I would have to put wolf children in a top five. No. Yeah. Wow. Is that your number one for, for Hossida? I think so. Either wolf children or Mirai was my number one. So then would Mirai get in? No. Okay. I think I think I must have put Wolf Children as my number one. I can't remember, but it's it's this this is the thing, isn't it? Where suddenly, when you broaden it to be these four or five filmmakers and studios, they just vibe against each other in a different way than if it was just one studio. And I think I was pulled up on this. I've when we did the book, Jake, and we picked Millennium Actress. friend of the show Alex the Dr. Witt pulled pulled me up on that saying why did you choose Millennium Actress for Con when I think neither of us had that as our number one Mm. (laughs) in 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 the order on the podcast and it's because when you're looking at them in different contexts maybe it is better to think of a five of five films that complement each other better Mm. um and a tv series because that's what you wanted to go for Jake (laughs) you live a long con Hey, that's um, but, good. Yeah. <laughs> I think for me, Whisper of the Heart, Totter. Oh my gosh, because five <laughs> is so brutal as well. Because it's that's a one from each series, I suppose. But then, Scott, you've you've broken the podcast. <laughs> but um, I this, think Michael, so, your like in your heart of hearts, yours would probably be four Ghibli's and a con. But I do also think that Coraline is such a. I did say on this on the podcast that Coraline feels like one of the films in my sort of adult lifetime that feels like a classic. And admittedly, only two or three Ghibli films came out in that time. But that feels like one I, and, I would. And Earwig of in. the Witch. Earwig <laughs> and the Witch was one of them. <laughs> yeah, I think. The short answer for this is that we'd have to figure out some extra rules for the rubric for how to do a top five. I think, but then I suppose that's the question. So from this, I'd say Coraline has a chance of being in that top five. I don't think there's a Hossida film. I would say Song of the Sea has a chance of being in that top five for me. And for Con, any of them could be in the top five but more likely Millennium Actress out of them. So that's probably the better way of doing it because it's just otherwise going to be a bloodbath. So your your ranking, your top five Ghiblis were Whisper of the Heart, Totoro, Fireflies, Mononoke, Kiki's Delivery Service. Which one are you which one are you taking out to um presume is it what what are you how are you knocking it down? Where's Millennium Actress or Song of the Sea or Coraline's slotting in there? I mean can't though, can it? Really? So the the conclusion is that the top five are the top five Ghibli films. <laughs> it, it sounds absurd, right? But I I hope that listeners understand the 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 complication here. Um, I, I'd swap. So if I was doing this more, the films that vibe against each other, I could lose Kiki's Delivery Service. I'd go for Totoro. Whisper of the Heart, Grave of the Fireflies, and then I would put in 
probably Millennium Actress, definitely Millennium Actress, and then maybe even Coraline to round out the five and apologise to Cartoon Saloon. So there you go, that's my five. <laughs> I, I, I wonder, Scott, if, 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 uh, if you picked five knowing that that's a brutal number. Because if it was ten, I think we'd, be, we'd, we'd find it much easier the top 10 films of the podcast you say this michael you just you spent like a month toiling over your sight and sound top 10 and so i think you'd probably end up toiling for another month on this and actually there was only one ghibli film (laughs) so yeah (laughs) oh no (laughs) don't bring that up Uh but scott thank you for that email <laughs> well, in terms of like, for the pain. next series, are there any studios we could cover that you think would break the top five of all time? Oh God! In animation, or yeah, in... like if our next mini series w- mm. had to include a film that would be one of our top five favorite movies that we've ever covered. Does that exist? I think, yeah, if we covered it all? If we did Pixar. Okay. What's the Pixar? Ratatouille? Yeah. Alright, because I'd say the Iron Giant. Uh, yeah, Iron Giant. It's a great shout. It's not a studio, though, is it? Well, it, it, it would be Ornithology, the Brad Bird miniseries. Ha 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 ha! Very good. <laughs> which, which, would, which I think would be all bangers, right? Episode Incredibles 2. Although I remember, Steph, you're a fan of that film. Yeah. I like Tomorrowland a lot as well. Great score. I don't like Incredibles 2, really. Um, yeah, Iron Giant. I just read um, the Iron Man, the Ted Hughes book, the other day. Very lovely. Very different. Um, yeah, Brad Bird would be really good. I don't <laughs> know if there is anyone else. Let us know. Yeah, that's the point yeah. of this. Yeah, let us know. <laughs> Give us your ideas. We've had lots of people on Twitter. We put we put a tweet out the other day with lots of suggestions. Um, yeah, a lot of Shinkai love out there. Shinkai Yuasa, some really interesting suggestions, which is uh, along similar lines to what we've been thinking about about how to tackle maybe a range of films from filmmakers who maybe only have one or two features, and if we you know. We've done this so far. We've had filmmakers or studios with discrete filmographies, but then how would you tackle a filmmaker who only has one or two films? That's always an ongoing thought process for us. Good to see some tweets on that topic. Also, Naoko Yamada, another mm. filmmaker that seems to be quite a popular pick. Okay, I want to go to bat for Celine Sciamma. You want to go live action? And animation. My life is a courgette. We do the what we and we can because then we can talk about Paris Thirteenth District and Adrian Tomine and talk about Petit Maman and Totoro. I think there's a lot of stuff that our interests align with Celine Sciamma's interests. You need we need to come up with the pun though. Yes, we do. Let us know if you maybe yeah listeners if you come up with a good enough pun for a Celine Sciamma <laughs> series yeah. The Celine Schiamatic. It would be the Celine Siamograms. Selenima. 
It's late, everyone. It's late. We're very tired. The series has been very long. I think this is a good place to put the lichenography and the selectionary to rest for now. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you to Sam, Nikki, Matthew and Scott for sending in the contributions to the mailbag. Listeners, you can get in touch with us at ghibliatech at gmail.com via email. We're also on Twitter at ghibliatech on Instagram, ghibliatech.pod. Join us on Patreon as well. We'll put out our Library Cafe bonus episodes throughout the hiatus until whatever we do next. You can find that patreon.com slash ghibliatech. We also have a Discord channel where we talk about all sorts of nerdy things from Ghibli to video games to sharing bookshelves and record collections and and so on. We've also got a book coming out. We do, don't we? (laughs) Middle of October. We're so bad at promo. (laughs) Middle of October, the Ghibliotech anime movie guide will be on shelves in the UK, the US. I think it's also coming out in France and Spain and Germany around the similar time. And we're going Um, on tour. We're going to be out in cinemas around England in October, November, December. Um, we'll be tweeting details about that very soon. Um, gosh, usually we record in the mornings and this is a late night. <laughs> late this is night late record. for me. I says <laughs> Ghibli Tech After Hours. Listeners, thank you for sticking with us throughout all of our podcasting, throughout the whole mini-series of the Lycanography and the Selectionary and particularly through this episode you can find us individually on twitter jake's on there at jkh cunningham steph's there at underscore steph watts and michael is there at michael j leader Ghibliotech is produced by michael leader jake cunningham harold mcshill and steph watts our music is by anthony ying Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.